My name is Keith Lippy. I've been a member Living Hope for about eight years, and it's my privilege to speak to you this morning. We're going to jump right in. Today we're going to look at a story that Jesus told about two people who lived vastly different lives. They lived these two lives in close proximity to each other. The one factor in this account that is consistent for both of these men was death. In this story, Jesus, God the Son, gives us a glimpse into what human existence is like after the moment of death. The saying that no one gets off this planet alive is mostly true. Apart from the Old Testament examples of Enoch and Elijah, who are taken to heaven without dying, and those who will be living in the future at the time Jesus Christ returns at the rapture, everyone else will experience death. These two men, the rich man and a man named Lazarus, found themselves immediately after taking their last breath in two very different eternal destinies. There's some argument among students of the Bible whether this account that Jesus told is a parable or it's a story involving real, actual people. In the text of Scripture, this account is situated in the middle of a long discourse of many other parables. Yet the text itself does not explicitly label this account as a parable. The use of individuals with names, Lazarus and Abraham, also causes some to believe that the account was an actual event, not a parable. I don't have the answer to this, but regardless of whether this story is actual or a parable, Jesus used it to teach people the truth about the realities of the kingdom of God and life after death. Jesus told the story about a rich man and Lazarus as a warning directed mainly to the Pharisees. But the Bible tells us that great crowds accompanied him. And he was, as he was teaching, and that the disciples were present also. So in the audience were followers of Jesus, people who hated Jesus, and people who were just there to see what was going on. Okay, the, the passage of scripture is an illustration of the balance or tension that exists between the divine concepts that define who God is, okay? Is, for example, is God a God of love or is God a God of wrath? Okay, he is both. Okay, God's love lies in perfect tension or balance with the concept of his wrath. Um, the judgment of God exists in perfect equilibrium with the grace of God. These attributes of God seem like polar opposites, but in reality, they encompass the complete picture of who God is. Um, our tendency, and the tendency, I think, of the modern church in general is to get off balance in our understanding of God by emphasizing only the attributes of God that we like, or that the ones that make us feel good. But this story blasts away the fog and gives us a clear picture of the reality of the God of the universe. The idea of a place created by God 
for the eternal punishment of those who reject him and his word is not a feel-good subject. The story teaches us about heaven and it teaches us about hell. Heaven is the place for those who receive God's love and will experience his love and mercy. Hell is the place for those who reject God's love and will experience his wrath and judgment. Hell is a necessary product of God's holiness. Because God is holy, just, and righteous, and is opposed to sin and evil, he created a place where one day all sin and rebellion will be banished from his presence forever. This story told by Jesus gives us stunning detail about what the future holds after we die. It shows us what the places that people will spend eternity are like. But this is not all this account by our Savior talks about. It talks about man's selfishness and the deceitfulness of riches. It talks about God's justice and the reality of eternal judgment. And it talks even about evangelism and the sufficiency of God's word. So as we get into this, let's go to God in prayer, ask him to give us the ears to hear what the Spirit wants to teach us today so that we can adjust our lives in response to his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the, what has just been illustrated, your death and burial and resurrection, and the blood that was shed for us, your body broken for us, that we could come into a restored relationship with you and escape the awful place for those who reject you. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and help us to hear and understand and respond to you today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn your Bible to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It's in verses 19 to 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, I want to start here with a little bit of context. In the parable that precedes this story, Jesus had just told the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, that they cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said, back in verse 13 of Luke chapter 16, he said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, the Pharisees didn't receive this very well. Instead of changing their minds and their wicked actions, okay, that is repentance. Changing your minds, which results in a change of actions. Instead of doing that, they scoffed and ridiculed Jesus and his teaching. Jesus pronounced the verdict on them by proclaiming. In verse 13 and 14 it says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Okay, now I want to move to the contrast Okay, the contrast between the Old Testament, what it taught about money and wealth, and what the worldly wisdom of the Pharisees was at that time. The Old Testament was clear on its teaching about wealth and riches. In this story, the rich man, who was an analogy of the Pharisees, should have known how to handle his money. Psalm 49 explains that this life is not all there is. It warns against trusting in the security of wealth, and boasting about the abundance of one's riches. It teaches that all men will one day die, and no amount of money can buy them a place with God in eternity. In, Psalm, in verses 10 11 of the 49th Psalm, it says this. It says, For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever and their dwelling places to all generations, even though they call lands by their own names. The prophet Jeremiah wrote about knowing and trusting in God is what is important, not worldly success or the successes that a person accomplishes in this life. Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So in direct contrast or contradiction to the teaching of the Old Testament prophets, the rich man flaunted his possessions. Okay, he did like the world tells us today. If you got it, flaunt it. 
This rich man wore the most expensive clothes that money could buy and ate the most lavish and exotic food that the world had to offer. Purple dye and fine linen were extremely expensive in ancient times. It is not difficult to see the picture that Jesus was painting for us here. The rich man lived luxuriously every day while right outside his house laid an impoverished beggar who had absolutely nothing. To add emphasis to the scene, Jesus revealed that this poor invalid desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. The implication being that even that desire was not fulfilled. On top of that, the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus laid at the porch of the rich man's house, sick and hungry, was ignored, and seemingly fought for scraps of food with the dogs. Dogs in the land of Israel at this time were not pets. They were scavengers which roamed wild while surviving on anything they could find. They were not vaccinated. They carried rabies, worms, other assorted diseases. In the thinking of the Jewish elite at the time, wealth was a sign of blessing from God. Great wealth was a sign of God's favor, while poverty and sickness was a sign of God's punishment. Remember, even disciples, the disciples had been influenced by this thinking when they asked Jesus about the man born blind. Disciples asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? At the same time, as the rich man was flaunting his possessions and living the good life, in the prevailing thinking of the day, he was enjoying the blessing of God. He had no care for Lazarus, since he most likely was under God's judgment for some kind of sin. Despite this thinking being common in the culture of the Jews of that day, this was not what the Old Testament taught. The rich man was actually living in rebellion to God and his word. He should have known the book of Proverbs, three verses in Proverbs, stated very clearly what the Old Testament taught about riches and love for your neighbor. In Proverbs 14, 21, it says, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 21, 13 says, Whoever closes his eye to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Wow, just think of that as we progress in the story. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Wow, almost prophetic statements in this story. We'll see in a minute. The life and actions of the rich man revealed his hard attitude toward God and his commandments. His character demonstrated a disregard for the summation of the law. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The lesson that we can take from this opening few verses is not that it's sinful to be wealthy. Wealth is given to us by God as a test. Wealth can be used to further God's work and build his kingdom. The danger comes when we find security in our possessions. Possessions have a way of owning us as opposed to the other way around. When our security, time, and energy are devoted 
to the acquisition and maintenance of our possessions, we are in danger of serving an idol, one that is competing with the one true God. Beware of serving money and material things instead of using them to serve God. First John says it this way, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, we've seen how the selfishness of man and how the deceitfulness of riches characterize the life of the rich man and can be a danger in our lives. Let's move now to the next theme in this account, in this account which is God's justice and the reality of eternal judgment. Okay, starting in, keep your eyes in your Bible there, verse 22 to 27. I will not read it again, but that's where we're focusing on here. Um, one of God's attributes is that he is just. The Bible explains what this means in Deuteronomy 32. It says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Okay? God makes the rules. He is the creator. He placed the first man and woman in a perfect environment where there was no such thing as sin or death and they enjoyed a perfect relationship with their owner and their maker. He gave them the ability to choose whether or not they would love and obey him. They chose to rebel by eating the fruit of the tree that he commanded them not to eat. This choice resulted in what we now know as sin. Okay, I have exhibit number one. Hold on. Since I was a little uh, delinquent getting my verses on the board, I thought I'd better keep you awake with some illustration. Um, this morning, I cut this limb from a tree. Don't tell my mother-in-law and father-in-law. It's from their prized magnolia tree. But... This morning, I cut this limb from a tree. I used this illustration in Sunday school class with some of your kids. And I said, is it alive? Is it alive? Well, it looks alive, doesn't it? It's green, leaves look pretty good. But is it alive? No, it's not alive. The relationship between this branch and the tree has been severed. Okay, that's what happens. That's what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit of the tree. They appeared, they didn't fall over dead, their bodies didn't fall over in that instant, but the process of death of their body began and their relationship with God was broken. Okay. Um, so that sets the stage for the that death is eternal separation from God. Okay, the word, the death is, talks about separation. Okay, death is eternal separation from God. When Adam and Eve ate, ate the fruit, they sinned, they were cut off. Their relationship 
cut off. And sin, the Bible tells us, then sin came into the world and death through sin. Okay. Um, God came up with a solution to this situation that the man and the woman and all who would come after them, including us, would find themselves in, and that is he promised to send a deliverer who would pay the ultimate penalty for sin so that man's relationship with God could be restored. But this would also involve a choice on the part of each individual, whether to submit to God and accept God's offer of forgiveness or not. For people living before the time of Jesus, which it appears that would be the setting of the story Jesus told here, for people living before the time of Jesus in the Old Testament, the choice was to trust God and his word by believing that the deliverer would come in the future. For us and those living after the time of Jesus, the, the choice would be whether we believe that Jesus already did die on the cross, pay the penalty for us. Um, because God is holy and perfect and a just judge, the rejection of his offer of forgiveness means that there must be a place for those who do not want God in their lives to live for eternity. That place is what we call hell. We're going to talk about that term in a minute. Those who choose to submit themselves to God by believing in the sacrifice Jesus made for them would have their broken relationship restored and live forever with God in heaven. Okay, we're all born. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, sin came to the world and death as a result of sin and passed on to all people. So because of our ancestors, Adam and Eve, we are all born and our relationship with God already cut off. Okay. Okay. Here's now... Here now is where death enters the scene. You get into verse, verse 22. It says, The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Okay. Exhibit number two. As soon as I remember where I put it. Um... The Bible says, come on now, I have too many pockets. What in the world did I do with it? This is terrible. Ah, uh -huh. okay. Phew, okay. What happens when you die? The Bible says in Genesis that God formed man out of the dust of the earth. You're going to have to use your your imagination. This is a body. Okay? God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay? This is you and I now. Okay? We got our body and our spirit all in one. Okay? When we die, which is going to happen for all of us, Spirit leaves. What is left? Just a bag of bones. Okay, you go to a viewing and you look in the casket and there lays somebody and there's a body there, but they are not there. Okay, their mind, will, consciousness, emotions, they're gone. Okay, um, 
Death is separation. Okay? Separation of the spirit of a man and the body of a man. Okay? Now, this is what happened to Lazarus and the rich man when they died. Now we'll talk about Hades. Hades is a generic term which means the place of the dead or the grave. It's, a, it's a, similar to the word Sheol in the Old Testament. It really does not have a connotation to, of bad or good. It's just a generic place of the dead. Where we get our idea of hell and, you know, hell and heaven is like most places in the Bible, there's a qualifier. Okay? It says here, the rich man being in torment. Ah, okay, so we know he's... The idea in the Bible is that there's the place of the dead and there's kind of like two sections. The place of torment, Abraham's bosom or paradise, okay? And the reason, I don't know what this looks like or whatever, but there's, the reason is when, when you and I die, we're going to go immediately, directly to the place destined for us depending on our decision and our life, how if we chose to, to um, accept the offer of forgiveness that Jesus paid for us. If we accept it, we're going to go immediately to heaven and paradise. If we reject it, immediately to the place of torment. Okay, in the Bible we see in... in uh, 1 Thessalonians, it says that when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds for the rapture, that the dead in Christ will rise. But at that time, believers, when Jesus returns, our bodies, I could do this again, our bodies and our spirit come back together and we will be forever. The Bible says that be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, so we're going to be back with Jesus in heaven. The first resurrection is the one where people who believe their bodies will come out of the grave, reunite with the Spirit, and will stand, the believers will stand at judgment. Okay, it says it's appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. We'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ which is not a judgment of whether you go to heaven or hell. It's, a, it's just an accountability of how you used your life. Okay, now the up, on the other side, same is true with people who go to hell. They go to paradise. They will stay there until this one now is, will be at the time of the great white throne judgment. Their bodies, souls reunited, they will stand at judgment also. At the great white throne, and that is a judgment of works. People, because they rejected the sacrifice, the work that Jesus did for them, they will have to be judged on their own works, and nobody's going to measure up to so that judgment. Everybody ends up in the final place of torment, which is the lake of fire. Okay, and then the, conversely, a believer. There's the new heavens, and, you know, and internally we'll go to a new heaven. Okay, so don't get bogged down on that. When we, you die, you're going to be in the place 
where you have chosen to be forever. Okay, but just to give you a little idea, some of the little intricacies of the scripture, what it teaches. Okay, death is impartial. Poor man died, the rich man died. Tall men die, short men die, young men die, old men, young women. Okay, you know, death is impartial. Um, death is inevitable. Everybody dies, like we talked about. Then there's, there's an irony, irony here of life after death, and that is the rich man who thought he was blessed by God went to the place of torment. The poor man who the Jewish elite thought was under God's punishment was carried by the angels to be with Abraham what we would call heaven. Okay, take a minute to talk about the eternal destination of the rich man, okay? Look carefully at the words in the, still in verse 22 to 26. The eternal destination of the rich man was a result of his earthly choices. Abraham said to him, child, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things. Okay, he chose how to live. Okay, it was his choice. Eternal destination of the rich man in hell is a place of suffering. He said, I am in anguish. The Bible, this place is so terrible. The Bible places, um, describes it in scripture as utter darkness, a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Some of that idea comes from another word in the Bible for eternal place of torment is Gehenna. And that is, that is used for like the lake of fire or the final eternal destination. Not the sort of temporary abode you wait for judgment, but after judgment, the final Gehenna. And that was from the, the word comes from the valley of Hinnom. It was like a dump outside of Jerusalem where they threw trash and it was burning all the time, maggots and stuff eating in the, you know, dead people. Probably Lazarus was thrown out there, okay? Says the rich man was buried. He had a proper burial. Lazarus, he probably didn't even have one, okay? Um, A place where people are eternally separated from God. Um... It says that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It says they're forever separated from light, 1 John 1.5. Forever separated from love, 1 John 4.8. Forever separated from joy and forever separated from peace, Ephesians 2.14. A place of heat, thirst, and flames. Verse 24, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's a place where those who, who are there remember the regrets of their past life. Abraham told him, remember, you had things good in your life. You're going to rem- people in hell are going to remember the opportunities they had and, and didn't take and how they lived their life. A place where a person goes immediately after dying. Okay, we said that it's immediate. There's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. It's immediate. When these Lazarus and the rich man died, they were immediately in their final destination. Um, And maybe the worst part of all, hell is a place of no escape. Verse 26 says, And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, 
in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Wow. Even though God created this place, it is not his desire that anyone experience it. He is patient and long-suffering, allowing each person the opportunity to put their faith and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. It says in uh, 2 Peter 3, 9, that he's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the reason the rich man went to hell was not because he was rich. It was because he failed to recognize his sinfulness. He failed to turn from his dependence on self and turn to the sacrifice that God made for his sins by promising to send a Savior. We know that the Savior is Jesus Christ who came to earth. He proved himself to be God in human flesh. He suffered, he bled, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe. He was buried and three days later rose again from the grave to prove that he had power over death, sin, and hell. So the rich man failed to repent. Lazarus, you know, it doesn't give us these descriptions, but from the Bible we know that Lazarus repented. He believed God, believed his word, believed in the deliverer that was to come that would pay the penalty for him. If you're, this is the first time you ever heard the gospel, it's good news. You can escape the eternal torment of hell by placing your faith in Jesus Christ today. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I would highly recommend you do it today. Because we have no guarantees in this life. The Apostle Paul tells us what to do. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That means declared not guilty. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Think about the rich man. He was put to shame, wasn't he? But there is no distinction between the Jew and Greek, put in there American, Hispanic, Asian. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to have a chance here as I finish up and Pastor Matt comes and the worship team plays. Don't come yet. That's not the sign. Um, if, you, if you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God is still cut off. You have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come and talk to somebody. Don't leave here in that condition. Okay. The eternal destination of Lazarus. It was a place where you are known by name. And Lazarus had a name. The rich man had no name. In hell, nobody knows you. There's no fellowship. Okay? In heaven, we know each other. We're known. Awesome place. A place of comfort. A place inhabited by people who believe. Represented by Abraham, the father of those who believe. Okay? Galatians says this, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, okay, put in there anyone, 
seeing, foreseeing that God would justify anyone by faith in Jesus Christ, parentheses, they preached the gospel, the death, I'm putting some parentheses in there, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, that's why Abraham's the guy in the story. Okay. Destination of Lazarus is a place for those who repent, who turn from their sinful ways and turn to Christ in faith. Okay, the last theme we see in this story is evangelism and the sufficiency of God's word. Okay, in verses 27 to 31, I'm going to go ahead and read them. It says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The, that came to fruition twice. Jesus raised another Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus. Raised another Lazarus from the dead and what? The Jews were still tried to kill him. Then Jesus Christ himself raised from the dead, and still people don't believe. Okay? So we have everything we need. The Word of God is sufficient to save anybody, to take your broken relationship and change it and restore your relationship with God, escaping the fire of hell and entering a place of comfort forever. This book is sufficient to do that. Okay. The rich man was now, he now understood the urgency to tell his brothers. Urgency he never had before. The rich man now understood the gravity of his situation. He was never going to escape. And the rich man now understood his missed opportunity to evangelize. Jesus has called us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I was thinking about this. Sometimes you hear, oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. You know, when I got married, I told my wife, I don't have the gift of doing laundry. I don't have the gift of doing dishes. You know, that didn't fly. And that, I don't have the gift of evangelism doesn't fly. This is a commandment to everybody. Just take a minute to think about the millions of people who are in hell right now. I'm sure you know some of them. So do I. If they are anything like this rich man, they are longing to tell their loved ones and to put their trust in Jesus before it's too late so that they can avoid the place of torment called hell. You and I have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to everyone we come in contact with. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, our business associates all need to hear. Our witness should balance both a welcome and a warning. The Bible is a balance, okay? Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A welcome. But he also said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you would die in your sins. Jesus also said, repent, or you too will likewise perish. 
So balancing, welcome warning. John 3.16 is a good example of both. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, a welcome, should not perish, a warning, but have eternal life. Okay, now, worship team, now you can come on. God gives us everything we need to be effective in evangelism. And here it is. It is sufficient to save, and it is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces the heart. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've talked to somebody, and they seem, uh, and, you, and you share, the Bible says, and I'll tell you, their, whole, their countenance changes. This book has power. Your opinion, my opinion, they don't have much power. But this book has power. And our responsibility is to share it. You know what? The response is not our, is not our responsibility. That's God's. But one day, when we stand before God, we're called to be faithful. And that means faithful in sharing the gospel. Okay. Um, the Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Paul said it this way, For the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there's no more words that need to be added. Your word is sufficient, powerful. I think we all got the message. Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus Christ, has not put their faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, please bring them to talk to somebody today. Lord, we thank you that the rest of us escape this awful place of torment. Lord, help us to warn our brothers and sisters, co-workers and friends, and uh, be faithful. Help us to be faithful. I saw this in Jesus' name.